I remember uh, hearing someone talk years ago about an interaction that they had with uh, someone who didn't know God. And part of the reason they were sharing this story was because um, they were teaching people about how to interact with people who don't know God. And the person giving the instruction uh, told the story like this. They, uh, They were talking to someone and the person they were talking to said, I don't believe in God. And the Christian answered, this Christian man answered, what do you mean by God? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the unbeliever then said something like this. this is a bit of a Sondergell version. Basically a grey-haired, cranky old man who busts people. <laughs> and the Christian answered, I don't believe in that God either. You know, the truth is when it comes to Jesus, um, he is a God that no one expects. And, uh, and that's the title of my message this morning, that, uh, that Jesus is a God that no one expected. Go back to the very beginning, um, even before the manger. Think about where it all started. Uh, conceived through the Holy Spirit by a woman who wasn't married yet, uh, born to a virgin, um, and then born in a manger because there's no room in the inn. Luke 2 verse 7 says she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the inn. And I kind of go, really? <laughs> that, that's how we're doing this thing? Like the, the God of the universe, the one through, through whom the whole universe is created, um, gets born in a stable? Really? No one expected this. You know, at the time that Jesus was born, there was a competition going on um, to see who could honour the Caesar that was in power uh, the most, who could honour him the most on his birthday. You know, the, the Caesar's kind of direction was uh, be born human and become divine. Uh, Jesus is, is divine and he gets born a human. Uh, no one expected this. I mean, think about the, the lack of parties. You would think the creator of the world showing up and being born as a human on this planet, there ought to be some awesome parties going on. But what happens? Well, a bunch of angels put on a great show, but it's for a bunch of shepherds sitting on the side of a hill. That's it. No massive song and dance nationwide across the whole earth. It kind of slips in largely unannounced. And we see as we go through the life of Jesus through the Gospels that he's unusual. (laughs) He's not what people expect. He catches people off guard. He has an authority. That, um, that people aren't used to. Uh, Gospel of Mark talks about that. He goes around and he forgives people's sins and that makes the religious people puzzle. Uh, and all the while through uh, Jesus' time on this earth, you, you get this sense that the people of his day just didn't get him. They, they wanted him to rescue them from the Romans. They had this idea that he was the long-awaited Messiah who would save the nation of Israel from their oppressors. And the, the, the strange thing about this is Jesus regularly reminds these people that he's not that guy. That's, that's not what he's doing. It's going to be really, really different to that. He, he tells them plainly he will be crucified and then rise again from the dead on the third day. Uh, I want to look at one of these times uh, where Jesus spells this out really clearly. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. 
That would be great. We're just going to read 27 to 33. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Classic Jesus, making it personal. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell, charged them to tell no one about him. Now, quick note, Peter nails it. He gets it right. He does well. Look at verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Listen to this, verse 32. And he said this plainly. Now, what does Peter do? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And note to self, if you feel like you need to rebuke God, there's a problem. And it's not God's problem, it's going to be your problem. You know, the, uh, the, the idea behind this, uh, this word rebuke here is, is, an, is a kind of rebuke and correction that would often be reserved for rebuking and correcting demons. This is, this is what Peter's doing to Jesus. You know... <laughs> Peter's gone from a massive high to an incredible low, right? And it's like, at this point, I'm kind of going, let's just wheel him out uh, in a wheelchair and stick him in a decompression chamber because something massive has just happened here and uh, he's in strife. But he gets it wrong. Let's keep going, verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Well, man, now that <laughs> is intense. I mean, he's just gone a few verses earlier from just nailing it and getting it right, and all of a sudden Jesus is calling you the devil. Now, you're not putting that on your CV, right? You're not putting that on your resume. Jesus said I was the devil. That would not be a cool thing to put down. Uh, but Peter's view of the Messiah was a triumphant Messiah not a suffering one. So he gets to work correcting Jesus. He goes from hero to zero in five minutes. Then Jesus goes on in verse 34 and 35, if you've still got it open there. He goes further and he says, this is normal. This process of death and resurrection, this shape of a life that has death and resurrection in it is normal for my followers. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is not the only time that Jesus tells the disciples about this. I mean, there's another one just a chapter later in Mark chapter 9, but it doesn't compute for the disciples. But it wasn't just the disciples that had trouble computing this, it was the crowd also. You can go across in your Bibles there to uh, John chapter 6. John chapter 6 tells a story about uh, a large crowd, 5,000 men were in this crowd, um, and then obviously others would have been there as well. And Jesus fed them miraculously with five loaves and two fish. Uh, look at what happens in verse 14 and 15 after that. 
When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It wasn't just the disciples that had this wrong. There were people all over the place that had this wrong. They, uh, they anticipated that Jesus was going to be this Messiah that was going to free them from the oppression of the Romans. And if they had to, they were going to thrust him into that place and start something so that um, that whole process could take place. It's intense. I mean, uh, we're going to revisit the, uh, the crucifixion in a moment. Uh, we've got Easter next weekend, but think about uh, what happens after the crucifixion and the resurrection. There's still people that don't get uh, what Jesus is, is up to and what he's doing. Go across to Luke chapter 24. I want to read a section from Luke chapter 24. Now, Jesus has been killed before a handful of followers. Um, like, who expected that? Um, it's now the third day and two of the disciples are walking together on the third day. <laughs> and I want you to note here that Jesus is still a God that no one expects. It's still going on even though uh, some amazing things have happened. So this is uh, Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Listen to this. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Isn't that interesting? Like, he just did that. (laughs) And they're kind of going, we hope that he'd be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. You know, we could... We could go on here, but uh, I trust you get the big idea here is um, Jesus is a God that no one expects. There's even an eyewitness and he's a God that no one expects. I want to uh, spend just a little bit of time now in Isaiah 53. So I'd love for you to, for you to turn there because I think Isaiah 53 highlights the fact that um, Jesus is so, so different to what the disciples and the people um, 2,000 years ago expected. And I, I actually think he's different to what we expect also. Um, so if you can turn to Isaiah chapter 53, uh, Isaiah was a prophet in Israel. He prophesied about 740 to 700 BC. And you just have to stop there for a minute um, and just think about that like that's not even close. Like if, if you're out there and you're not a Christian... 
and you just kind of go, oh, these Bible things are a bit of a stitch up. I just go, well, this one's not even close. It's not like it's five years and someone kind of cooked the books. Uh, this is seven centuries before Jesus came. Um, amazing. Uh, you know, Isaiah's job was to call people back to faithfulness to God and it was, um, his job was also to foretell things that God was going to be doing in the future, including some amazing prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Incredibly accurate, stark prophecies. And this is no surprise to us because we know from Scripture that God's pattern, his habit, is to reveal what he does to his prophets before it happens. Uh, that's what we learn in Amos. Um, so, um, so let's have a read of uh, Isaiah 53 uh, verse 1 to 12. We're just going to take our time through this section. Let's start with, um, with the opening section there, the verses 1 and 2. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking of Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. <laughs> you see, Jesus' majesty wasn't about physicality. His majesty was about who he was as a person and what he was going to do. You know, you, you look in the, uh, in the Gospels and you find that uh, uh, Matthew talks about Jesus, uh, reports on Jesus saying uh, that he is gentle and lowly in heart. That, that's his nature. Jesus is a self-sacrificer for love's sake. And I think verse 2 there, as you look at it, uh, just flags with you the fact that people go looking for something different. People often go looking for physical majesty. <laughs> and it just wasn't there. The physical majesty wasn't there with Jesus. He was run of the mill. Um, he, he wasn't a standout and they missed it. And sometimes we miss it. You know, sometimes we can want something else from Jesus rather than getting from him the person that he truly is that we most need. Go to the next verse, verse 3. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isn't that weird? I mean, John chapter 1 talks about Jesus coming to his own and his own not receiving him. Of all the people that ought to be received by Jesus, ought to receive Jesus, I should say, it's his own people. But he shows up and he doesn't get any kind of significant reception. You know, sometimes I listen to cool people. Clearly, I'm not one. Um, and sometimes, every now and then, I kind of think, oh, I'd love to be doing what they're doing or to be cool like them, all right? Let's be honest, there's a few of us that kind of think that uh, every now and then. I think that every now and then. But when you look at verse 3 here, he was despised and rejected. He was never in, <laughs> ever. He was never in the in crowd, you know, Humanity didn't just expect him to be in the in crowd, they expected him to start the in crowd. And he wasn't doing either. And you notice the, the pattern through that verse there, we start out with humanity not even noticing him, 
And by the end of it, it's just full-on rejection. It's not the, just that we didn't notice. Like now we're hiding our faces from him and, we're disp- and he's despised by us. And I think one of the most amazing parts of this uh, verse, uh, the thing that really hits me, is uh, he, he is well acquainted with sorrow and grief. And we'll get to that later, but you can run to him in sorrow and grief. Every single time he knows it. He's not one who's unaffected by it. You know, th- this, this particular part of the text in Isaiah 53 has got shades of leprosy, really. Um, and some commentators suggest that. It's just got shades of leprosy that Jesus is being rejected like a leper. Just does not compute, really, does it, with what he should get. Go to verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. (laughs) You know, have a look at the end there, at the end of verse 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. You You know what humanity thought? Oh, he's dying for his own trouble. It's his own sin. It's his own strife that he's dying for. And yet ironically, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 4, he's actually dying for ours, even as we're thinking he's dying for his own. He's under it, even though he's done nothing wrong. Go down to verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You know what chastisement is? It's punishment by beating. So all of the things that we've done wrong, all of the times that we've turned away from him and not honoured him the way that we ought to have, all of the times that we've loved something more than him, anything, he got beaten up for us, for that. Amazing. You know, what we've got here is we've got the piercing of crucifixion. And what do we know from the scriptures about being crucified? Well, we know that everyone who hangs from a tree is cursed by God. And note there in, uh, in that verse, in verse 5, the second half of it, who would have thought that the beating of an innocent man would bring peace? Who would have thought that the wounding of an innocent man would bring healing for the guilty? Uh, this is a God that we don't expect. Go down to verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He carries our sin. Let's keep going. 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Like who does this? Who, whoever is innocent and gets treated really, really badly and they, they're able to take it. I mean, I don't like to do it. I like to put my hand up straight away and just go, no, call him foul here. That that shouldn't be happening. This is not fair. It's not right. That's, I mean, how many political campaigns do we have in our country that are all about fairness? That's kind of what the slogans are. This was the most unfair thing that's ever happened. And he took the hit. He took the hit. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off 
out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen to this. This is powerful. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he makes his soul, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered for the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This God that no one expected got beat up by evil people. That's amazing. That God would come and be vulnerable, put himself in a position to get hurt and then get beat up and killed by bad people. And you have to stop and just think about that for a minute. You know, if you're not if you're not a believer, if you don't trust in Jesus, um, that's going to be pretty fresh. Like that's, that's an intense reality. If you're a Christian, you're probably a little used to that. That's just a, that is an intense reality, Christians. God comes down, he's never done anything wrong and he puts himself in a position to get beat up and killed by bad people. No one has been more affected by evil than Jesus. No one has been more victimised by evil than Jesus. You know, and we're not just talking physically. You know, perhaps some of you can contemplate a kind of death that Jesus could die, or some, sorry, a kind of death someone else could die that's worse than Jesus. You know, but the physical side, I think, was only a small part of the reality of what Jesus did on the cross and the suffering that he went through on the cross you know what the biggest part was Uh, carrying our sins and the judgment that they deserved sins of the world millions and millions and millions of people that's massive you know why it's massive the reason why it's massive is because one sin is enough to get you to hell forever (laughs) that's your ticket you want a ticket to hell do one And we've all done one. We've all done one in the last 20 minutes probably. And Jesus comes, dies on a cross and he carries that sin and he carries the judgment and the punishment for that sin on the cross. How many sins? I wouldn't be able to count. I wouldn't be able to count because it wouldn't just be for me for the last 20 minutes. It would be for everyone watching this and and everyone who's ever believed in Jesus and trusted in Jesus for the whole of the past, the present, and the future. How many? Dunno. <laughs> Dunno. And this kind of this pushes us a bit, right? And the reason why this pushes us a bit is because when we get into the middle of suffering and pain, we instinctively think that ours is the worst. That that tends to be the case most of the time. We just kind of go, no one understands this, no one else gets it. Um, 
ours is kind of the worst, and, and we can kind of get things out of whack a little bit. And uh, some of you have heard me uh, comment on um, a very unhelpful statement that people make to each other, but I just want to pull something out of it that I think actually is helpful. This is, uh, this is a statement that we make to each other sometimes. You don't have it as bad as dot, dot, dot. And we think of someone on the planet somewhere that has got it worse than us. Um, and we kind of say to ourselves, well, or someone else says to us, basically, you need to suck it up because they've got it way worse than you. Now, I think by and large, that statement is not a particularly helpful statement. Uh, I think in large part because the Bible never compares one person's suffering to another. Um, if, if you've had that said to you in the midst of really painful, acute suffering, you probably just wanted to punch the person in the nose. It's like, no, this is really, really bad right now, and I just, I just can't suck it up. Uh, but the saying, I think, does highlight a dynamic within the suffering person, which I think can be helpful to just kind of, if we can just cut that little piece out and, um, and, and concentrate on that one, I think it does uh, show how we can get things out of whack in our suffering. So what does it say, um, or what does it mean when I say to you that Jesus has had it worse than you? (laughs) Well, I don't want you to think that uh, because Jesus has had it worse than you that you need to stop acknowledging your pain and you need to stop talking about it. It isn't meant to make you stoic. It isn't me kind of telling you that Jesus has it worse than you, so you just need to suck it up and have a stiff, a stiff uh, upper lip. You know, the, the, the reason why I'm telling you that Jesus had it worse than you is that I want you to know that he's with you in the midst of whatever you're going through. You know, it may be true that no one else knows what it's like for you, you know, people have said this statement to each other often is, um, uh, I know how you feel. Now, the reality is no one truly knows how any other person feels because everyone's context is different. But I want to say to you this morning that Jesus knows what everything is like. You know, if there was anyone that was authorised to say, you don't know how it feels, it would be Jesus, right? And he could say that to us and say, you don't know what the cross was like. Um, you know, but, but Jesus wouldn't say that to you so that he would put himself a cut above you. He wouldn't say, you don't know what the cross is like and then he would be a cut above you. Does, would Jesus say that to separate himself from you? Not at all. Um, the suffering of Jesus, the trial of Jesus and the stuff that we've seen in Isaiah 53 is meant to be an assurance that it doesn't matter what you go through, he's with you. It brings assurance on so many levels, but that, that's one piece that we can kind of land on at this point in time is that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, talking about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see that? That, that kind of idea is like Jesus has been through a bunch of suffering and a bunch of trouble and a bunch of testing. And because he's been through that, he can help you. 
and he'll be with you. This is Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What am I saying this morning? I'm saying that it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what the next three months are going to be like or the next six months. It doesn't matter what the next 30 years are going to be like. It doesn't matter if, um, if, if we're going to go into a depression. It doesn't, none, none of that is going to affect the fact that Jesus understands you. He knows you. He's been through pain and suffering and trial and he's going to be with you in the middle of it. You're never going to reach something. You're never going to reach some kind of pain that all of a sudden Jesus is going, oh, well, I didn't, I haven't got a clue what that's like. Um, Well, I'm sorry, Peter. Uh, Yeah, best of luck. (laughs) I hope that works out well for you. You're just not going to have a moment like that. He he gets it. He gets you. He's, He's with you. I remember, um, Uh, doing some counselling with a, uh, a lady and um, at one point in time in our counselling session she, she asked the question, she was going through a, a great deal of uh, difficulty and hardship in her life and just internal struggle within herself and uh, I remember her uh, asking me basically what's the deal with God being good, loving, all-powerful and me kind of suffering here. And, uh, man, I just thought, yeah, I've read about this, I've thought about this, and I, I kind of kicked in there. I thought, no, she's looking for a philosophical answer to it. Um, she, uh, she wants to know uh, how, to, how to make this thing kind of fit together. And I, um, I think there's good philosophical answers um, for that question, but and do you know something? It just didn't hit the mark because she, that, that wasn't the question that she was actually asking. And as I was talking to my counselling supervisor about it, my counselling supervisor just made the comment that uh, I should go pretty slow with this lady. And um, then it kind of occurred to me that she wasn't asking me for a philosophical or even a theological answer. She was asking me how she could continue to exist in the middle of the pain and the trouble that she was in. She didn't need theory She needed personal practice in the middle of the pain and the trouble. And that's a question for us often. You know, most of the time when we're crying out, what's the deal with a good, loving, all-powerful God and evil and suffering, we're not asking for a theoretical answer. We're asking, how can we go on? How can we live in the middle of this? You know, one of the one of the, uh, the realities um, about, about evil in our world, there's, there's some general kind of statements in Scripture about why there's evil in the world. There's the fallen world. There's our own flesh. Others can sin against us. There's the devil. God has a purpose for evil and suffering. Uh, but when we get in that place where we get, uh, start to get a bit direct and, and perhaps even a little too confident in a negative way, in the way that we're talking um, to God about the evil that's going on around us, it, it actually flags that the kind of God that we think he is is actually different to the one he actually is. 
Now, people who criticise God for doing nothing in the midst of evil and suffering, uh, I think a lot of the time perceive him as someone who lives in a dust-free, pain-free environment that barks orders like he's some kind of kid with a magnifying glass on an anthill frying the ants. They see him like that. Now, (laughs) he's not like that. Easter just won't let you picture him as that. Um, It won't let you have that view of him. Isaiah 53 that we read today won't let you do that. God is not someone who's unaffected by evil. God is someone who is affected by evil the most. He is the most affected one. And so even, like, I just want to tell you that I understand. Like, you can get in the middle of a really intense time and you kind of go, uh, what is God doing? He's sitting on his hands. He doesn't care about me. And you can just kind of end up in a messy place. He's just aloof and he's unaffected. But, but then you kind of, then, then I kind of think, uh, well, hang on. Isaiah 53 says he's really affected. He got crucified on a cross. And then my brain circuits kind of blow because <laughs> I struggle um, to kind of put all those things together Uh, why does he tarry on things you know I I want to kind of default to saying that maybe he's cruel or maybe you do You, you want to default to him thinking of him as a cruel autocratic ruler that he's uncaring and that he's harsh but he's just not that he's he's a victim too he knows what it's like to be me he knows what it's like to be you and he promises that he will be with us He'll be with me. He'll be with you in the middle of the pain and the struggle that we're in. You know, this getting into the the middle of suffering and pain, sometimes we can start to think that we want to pin it on him. So it's his fault. But Easter, Isaiah 53 and countless passages tell us we just can't. We just can't. So where are we left? We're left with the opportunity to walk with him, to cry out to him, to lament to him, to talk to him. I want to read a couple of quotes. I think they're very helpful. One's from John Stott. John Stott says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? You see, you can worship this God. He's not immune to it. He's not aloof from it. He's not separate from it. He's, he's been a victim to it. And then Tim Keller says this. He says, On the cross we sufferers finally see to our shock that God now knows too what it is to lose a loved one in an unjust attack. And so you see what this means? We don't know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue, but we know what the reason isn't, what it can't be, It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care. Jesus loves you. That's why he died. And you know, you you can get in the middle of trouble and suffering and you may not know the reason why and you may not know what God's doing with it, but you need to trust him because he loves you. And just as the, uh, the music team comes up, um, let me encourage you in your own life to be an iconoclast. <laughs> an iconoclast is someone who shatters religious images. You know, one of the things that we do is we continually, uh, I think by habit, tend to put God in a box. 
Um, you know, I remember once hearing someone say, God created us in his image and we return the favour. And uh, there's a bit of truth in that. Uh, we have a tendency to decide for ourselves who God is. And I want to just encourage you to slow down a bit and let him tell you about himself. Let him tell you about himself. I mean, you, this is the way relationships work anyway. You can learn a little bit of stuff from someone by observing them and listening to them. A better way to learn about someone else is to, is to listen to what they say about themselves. What are the things that they like, the things that they don't like? What really makes them tick? What matters to them? Get into scripture and let God tell you about what he's like. You know, will you be doggedly committed to the version of him you think in your own mind or will you let him tell you what he is like? I want to assure you that he is better than you think.